At times, Israel might be too cautious about not acting decisively, and even in cases when there might be a significant number of non-combatant casualties from collateral damage. And uh, there are a number of cases where this has come up. And, uh, you know, I don't know what's exactly what's going on in the current war right now. It's too early to know, or the details will certainly come out. But uh, that is always a dilemma that we have to ask ourselves, uh, which is that we're balancing values. And one of the values is an ethical value to win, an ethical value to defend our people. October 7th was an ethical failure, not just a strategic failure, because we didn't protect our own people. And so you have to understand that that is an ethical value, which also needs to be prioritized as well. You know, all that being said, I think we should take a lot of pride in Israeli ethics and military ethics. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The IDF is the most moral army on earth. We hear this said, and we hope that it's true. But what does it mean? How is morality defined in wartime? Is the IDF code of ethics in line with Jewish teachings? Does the IDF, in fact, follow its own code of ethics? Alongside these general questions are specific questions that relate to the Torah viewpoint regarding what an army is obligated to do ethically when it's at war. What does Judaism have to say about the ethics of war, and are these ethics essentially the same as those demanded by the Geneva Conventions? To what degree must civilian noncombatants be protected? When is an army spokesperson allowed to lie in order to deceive the enemy? To what degree must we put our own soldiers in danger in order to protect innocents on the other side? Are reprisals against innocent civilians in order to further war aims ever justified? There are also other questions that we cannot ignore, such as how a Torah-based ethic of war deals with difficult passages of the Bible, such as when the Torah obligates Israel to obliterate Amalek and the seven Canaanite nations. The Torah also allows a king to wage a Melchemet Reshut, an optional war, for reasons that may not accord with the modern concept of a just war. How do we relate to these laws in establishing wartime ethics predicated upon the Torah? And of course, there are questions that relate directly to the current war that Israel is waging against Hamas. Has the IDF made ethical mistakes? Where has the IDF acted in an exceptional ethical manner? Is the current war considered a milchemet mitzvah, an obligatory war? And if so, is there justification for certain populations to avoid it for the sake of a higher religious goal? This brings us back to that opening statement, the IDF is the most moral army on earth. Based on the answers to all of these questions I listed, can we say that the Israeli army is indeed the most moral army on earth? Or are there areas which need improvement in order for that statement to be considered accurate? To discuss all of these questions, I was honored to host Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody, whose new book, Ethics of Our Fighters, A Jewish View on War and Morality, was just published. There are few issues that are as timely as this, and our conversation addressed some of the most important issues facing Israel's army today. We'll get to that conversation momentarily. But before we do, I want to very briefly thank every one of you who has listened to the Orthodox Conundrum over the past year. We had more listeners in 2023 than in any previous year, and it has been very gratifying to watch the podcast, and with it, a community of listeners, grow and thrive. 
I'm hoping that with your help, we can make the coming 12 months even more successful. That's why I request that if you have not yet subscribed to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast, please do so. And if you have, please share the Orthodox Conundrum with other people who you think will enjoy and benefit from our conversations. In addition, please rate and review, share, and subscribe to the other great Jewish Coffeehouse podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, Chochmat Nashim, and The Francisca Show. In fact, my co-host on Intimate Judaism, Tali Rosenbaum, and I just returned from the UK where we gave several lectures at the Limud Festival on various topics related to intimacy and Judaism. My plans for 2024 include the possibility of creating additional Jewish coffeehouse events and content, such as additional classes, live pop-up Jewish coffeehouses, and more. I'm excited about the possibilities, and I'd really like to hear what you'd like to see happen. So contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. That's scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com to give me your suggestions. I really appreciate hearing from you, so please reach out and tell me what additional programs you would like to see from Jewish Coffeehouse. In May, I started my Substack Orthodox Conundrum Commentary, and it's been both exciting and gratifying to watch it grow over the past seven months. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. The link is in the description of this podcast. If you have subscribed and you enjoy what you read, please recommend it to a friend who will also benefit from reading about major issues affecting the Orthodox world. My goal both in the podcast and in my articles is to spark wider discussion, thus enabling Orthodox Judaism to move forward where it excels and to rectify that which needs improvement. If this is important to you, please help out by spreading the word. Finally, remember that podcasting may well be the single best way to promote your business, your organization, your cause, or yourself. JCH Podcast Production will help you make it happen, whether you want to learn the basics and move forward yourself, or if you want us to do the heavy lifting. Either way, we will help you produce a high-quality, interesting, and effective podcast. So write to me today at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so your words and ideas can reach a wide and receptive audience. Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody is the Executive Director of Ematai and the Jewish Law Live columnist for the Jerusalem Post. He was the founding director of the Tikva Overseas Student Institute and co-dean of Tikva Online Academy, a senior instructor at Yeshivat HaKotel, and a junior research fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute. His writings have been cited in Israeli Supreme Court decisions and have appeared in Mosaic, First Things, Tradition, The Federalist, Tablet, Sohar, The Forward, Hakira, Jewish Review of Books, and other popular publications. His first book, A Guide to the Complex, Contemporary Halachic Debates, received a National Jewish Book Award. His new book is Ethics of Our Fighters, A Jewish View on War and Morality. A summa cum laude graduate of Harvard College, he received rabbinic ordination from the Israeli chief rabbinate, an MA in Jewish philosophy at the Hebrew University, and his PhD from Bar Ilan University Law School, where he continues to serve as a postdoctoral fellow. Rabbi Brody has been an invited scholar in residence at over 40 distinguished congregations and campuses in the United States, Canada, England, and Israel. Rabbi Shlomo Brody, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. So great to be back with you. The reason that we're speaking now is that you are just now coming out with a very, very timely book entitled Ethics of Our Fighters, A Jewish View of War and Morality. It happens to be, obviously, that this is the topic that I've been talking about for the past three months, as we all have. And I wanted to open up by asking you, what was your motivation for writing this book? Obviously, it's not in response to October 7th. Yeah, I've been I think about this for a while. My area of interest is the intersection between uh, halacha and Jewish thought and practical ethics. And sometimes in my day job with Ematai, uh, this is very really focused on medical ethics, but we're interested in all sorts of other areas as well. And certainly living in Israel for over 20 years now, uh, the issue of military ethics 
uh, is one of great importance. And uh, it's one of great dispute and a lot of discussion. Uh, and so I, I, that was really the primary impetus. But the other impetus for me was also thinking about the question of whether Judaism has much to say about this topic. Because, uh, you know, for many centuries, we didn't have power. We didn't have arms. And so these dilemmas of military ethics of power weren't something that we had to deal with. And the question becomes is after so many centuries of powerlessness, do we have what to say for this? So I started this project of looking through topic after topic and uh, turned into the book. Okay, in that case, let me read to you the opening story in the book at the very beginning of your introduction. It says, I'm quoting, several years ago, I invited one of Israel's most eminent philosophers to speak to a group of students in Jerusalem about the Israel Defense Forces Code of Ethics. At the end of his talk, one of the women asked how Jewish thought might impact military behavior. The philosopher, himself not religiously observant, but quite knowledgeable in Jewish sources, sharply responded, what could Judaism possibly teach us about military ethics? The laws of Eshe Ifat Tor, regulating how to take a captive foreign woman as a wife, were better off without it. Now, that is what you are opening up with, and you say that's why you wrote this book. You wanted to answer that question. Let me ask you quite plainly, does classical Jewish thought have much to say about military ethics, given that until 1948, for the most part, it simply wasn't relevant to Jewish life for 2,000 years? Yeah, I think we actually do have something to say on this topic, but it does take an effort to uh, derive and to piece together some of the principles that are key to how we look at these issues. There's no doubt we don't have anything systematic really written. And even in the Rambam's Hilchot Malachim, right, from the medieval time period, certainly isn't a systematic presentation of these types of issues. So we don't have anything like that, let's say the way that the Christians do in the just war tradition that they have. But we do have a lot of principles, a lot of values. And part of the argument in my book is, is that we can utilize from the sources of Jewish history, uh, many different values and create a worldview out of that. And one of the things that I discovered really when writing the book is since really World War I, even before the, you know, the founding of the State of Israel, Jews have been thinking about this on a serious level. And one of the sources of our wisdom from this isn't just our svarim, our books, but it's also the Jewish experience and the history of Jews in dealing with warfare. And you know, I think we had this real interesting dilemma where we didn't have a tremendous amount of sources but we had a lot of experience with ethics, of course, in general, and of suffering from warfare. And putting those two together helped us build the ideals which I think come together in this book. Well, then in that case, when we talk about suffering from warfare, I want to ask about something which you do discuss in the book, which is a strain of pacifism in Jewish thought. How strong is the pacifist strain in Jewish thought? And by and large, are there serious thinkers who have picked it up, or is it more a marginal idea? Well, I think that there are strands or notions of pacifism that you see in various sources already starting in Chazal, frankly, when many of the passages in the Torah that seem to describe, or Tanakh, that seem to describe bravery are turned into descriptions of the Talmud Chacham learning the Beit Midrash, you know, David and Melech and all these types of descriptions. And certainly I think there is a pushback against the glorification of the warrior that was found in Greco-Roman society and other societies as well. But I don't think you really have a strong, uh, certainly thought out 
pacifistic uh, type of theology. Although, as I you know discuss in the book, you do see this a little bit in some of the anti-Zionist rhetoric in the beginning of the 20th century. And there is this really fascinating, not well-known Rav Tamara, so we discuss in chapter one, who tries to develop it. But if you read his books and read his efforts, I think it's a very weak case. Uh, and I think it's telling that in spite of the fact that we had so many centuries of suffering from warfare, Jews understood that sometimes evil needs to be defeated by war. Let's talk a little bit about that pacifist strain as it has been manifest in some specific thinkers. I'm thinking in particular about someone who's not known for this, but that's Rav Cook. And the reason I'm asking is that Rav Cook is often quoted in many religious Zionist circles as being pro-war, so to speak. In fact, I have a book on my bookshelf I bought maybe 20 years ago, War and Peace, and it talks about how Rav Cook welcomed war in some very specific circumstances, particularly as a way of ridding the world of tyrants. That was, as I understand it, before World War I, and he thought that war was a chance for the light of Mashiach to shine and for things to change radically, but the carnage, the unprecedented carnage of World War I made him change his mind. Can you talk a little bit about how he changed his mind and what he felt after World War I that was different from his previous thought? Well, it's interesting where Cook lives in Europe during World War I. He gets stuck in Europe. Uh, he's traveling uh, to a conference, a rabbinic conference, and it's supposed to start right after Tisha B'Av in 1914. But that's exactly World War I breaks out. Rav Cook gets stuck in Switzerland and makes it to England for the rest of the war. So he sees the carnage of the war. But I don't think Rav Cook really has a pacifistic side to him. He did hope that World War I would bring about the purification of the world in some ways. They would understand the harmful effects of excessive nationalism and understand the harmful effects of illicit warfare. And uh, and he's pretty explicit about that. But at the same time, Ruff Cook certainly uh, you know, spoke even during the war about the importance of bravery during war, importance of fighting and defeating evil. And so then once he gets back to Eretz Yisrael and he understands that the Jews are going to have to fight against uh, their Arab neighbors, or at least to protect themselves against the Arab neighbors. He's very supportive of those efforts. Uh, there is a hope in his thought that the Messianic era will come about, Mashiach come about in the aftermath of World War I. Uh, but in this respect, Rav Cook was a very wise man, but not prophetic. Please tell me if I'm wrong. I guess we can also say that the prophets themselves, Yeshayahu and others, are pacifist in a messianic way, meaning their goal is to one day reach the messianic era when there will be no more need for war. And they are saying at that point, Lo but that's for a messianic future, not for the current world in which we live. Yeah, and I wouldn't even call that pacifism, meaning, right, there is this sense of they're aspiring for this. But if you look in Paragdal of Micha, where it's also quoted this same, Lo Apes took him later. He discusses this idea that evils can be defeated right, through warfare. And so I think that's important. Both of those values are important. And that's one of, I think, the beauties of the Jewish framework of thinking about these issues is you can retain both values at the same time in terms of trying to uh, figure out what's best for the world. Shlomo, let me ask then about some of the laws of warfare which appear explicitly in the Torah, which quite frankly offend our sense of morality. For example, the case of a war against Amalek or the seven nations of Canaan, where we are commanded to wipe them out completely, men, women, children. 
This obviously is something which we find morally offensive, and yet it's explicit in the Torah. There are also other examples which may not be quite as difficult morally, but still are not what we think of normally as a just war. For example, the idea of Mohammed Rishut, an optional war where a king is allowed to wage the war with the permission of the high court, the Sanhedrin, for the sake of expanding territory or even for the glory of the king. How do we talk about Jewish ethics of war while at the same time acknowledging that those ethics have to include these wars as well? Yeah, absolutely. And there's no doubt that if I wanted to create a book or create a worldview in which we'd say that there should be no limits on war, right? that all is fair in love and war, and that we could do whatever it takes to win, you could marshal sources in that direction. And I think we should be honest with that. However, I think if you take a really good look, and frankly, I think it's an honest look at the uh, history of the Mesorah of understanding those passages, uh, Amalek and Shiva, Kana, uh, Shiva Amim of Canaan are no longer applicable. They've been lost. And, and therefore, these really aren't uh, relevant in terms of how we fight war. It is true that the value, for example, of destroying evil, I still think is quite relevant. But teaching us, therefore, that's how we should fight, that we should kill all you know, men, women, and children, uh, is not the way, frankly, I think that the Mesorahs understood it. And in the rest of Tanakh, you know, you don't see uh, David, you know, the later kings going after Amalek and trying to fill this mitzvah. And, and so I think we see from there as well that there's no strong proof of saying uh, that we have to fight the same way they fought in the times of Tanakh. And the same thing goes with Muhammad Rashut. It's true that there is one interpretation that says that Muhammad Rashut is just you know entirely optional for the glory of the king, the type of you know imperialism that we find in other uh, you know other nations and other traditions. But there are many uh, interpreters of the understanding of Muhammad Rashut which limit Muhammad Rashut as well. And of course, it's important. You know, as they say that it can only be done for certain purposes. And it's important to note, you can't go to Muhammad Rishot unless you have permission of the Sanhedrin. And that is a very important moral balance to what could become, right, a very type of warrior type of mentality. What I also found fascinating was the different ways that you showed thinkers have contended with some of these, I'll call them immoral seeming laws in the Torah, like Amalek. You said someone like Rabbi Sachs, his general method, which is a common way, is to say, like the Gemara itself says, that it's simply no longer applicable, meaning he doesn't change the law, but he says that the law is no longer applicable for various reasons, either because Amalek is gone or whatever else. On the other hand, someone like Rav Cook had a more radical way of dealing with it, which is that the law exists in order to be transcended, if I'm understanding you correctly. In other words, the law is on the books, but God's goal was for us one day to transcend and go beyond that law and develop a greater sense of morality. Am I reading you correctly? Yeah, Rav Cook has some statements along those lines. Uh, they come out in some of his diary writings, which were only discovered or published you know, in the past several years. But he also had a fascinating correspondence with one of his students, Moshe Seidel, which I describe at length in the book. And uh, Seidel is a brilliant man, well-educated, uh, and becomes a Bible professor, and he studies in the academy, has many questions about the Mesorah and about ethics and about uh, the history of Tarsh and whatnot. And he writes to his Rebbe, and Rav Kook has some very fascinating answers to the, these questions. And I think Rav Kook draws on the idea of Chazal say, the Eshe Yafat Toar, this notion we started with earlier, was only right for the, uh, for the sake of dealing with the Yetzirah, but that's not an ideal. And Rav Kook develops this for a lot of things, 
including Muhammad Rashut, including Eshifat uh, Toar, including for slavery. Right? And says that just because something might have been mutter in the Torah doesn't mean it has to be something we view as ethically ideal forever. That assertion of Rav Cook is quite radical. It is a radical statement, and it's hard to know, you know what to do with that and how to apply it in certain cases. And I think that's the reason why people are a little bit weary of it, but it shows you how uh, important it was in, uh, uh, for him to say we do, shouldn't feel that we have to fight the same way they fought in the times of Tanakh. Let me ask you about something you mentioned a moment ago when you talked about a Muhammad Rashut, an optional war, only being undertaken with the permission of the high court, the Sanhedrin. If we translate some of these ideas into the current state of Israel, how would you do something like that? Does that mean that any war that is not a Muhammad mitzvah, we have to figure out how that's defined, if it's a preemptive strike, for example, or some other thing that might not be technically a Muhammad mitzvah in the sense that we normally consider it, would be illegal based on Torah law because you could only have that sort of act, that sort of invasion or whatever, that sort of activity with the permission of a Sanhedrin, which we don't have. Right. So there is a strand of thought, which is probably the dominant one, a mainstream one in the religious Zionist world today, which more or less says that Mohammed Rashid can't happen anymore because we don't have a Sanhedrin. But all of Israel's wars are wars of self-defense, and therefore this falls into the category of Mohammed Mitzvah. Um, and, and there is a lot of wisdom to that approach. I, I'm not so sure that's uh, correct. As I try to show in the book, uh, there are many postgame who felt that Mohammed Rashid can occur today because we can replace the Sanhedrin with some form of democratically elected body the same way we can replace a king with a democratically elected body. It's not clear why that wouldn't be the case. And I actually think it's important to maintain this idea uh, of a Muhammad Rashut because there are times when it's not so clear-cut that we have to go to war. It's not so clear-cut. And it could be that this is a preemptive strike, Six-day war being the classic case, but it could also be some form of preventative warfare. We're afraid that people are building up, and you have to make a decision then. And when you have to make those types of decisions about whether this threat is becoming too big and you should strike first, even though there's no imminent threat coming against you, that's when you really need to think long and hard, both strategically and ethically, if this is justified. And in that respect, the model of a Sanhedrin doesn't have to be Sanhedrin per se, but the model of an outside council that provides a bit of check and balances on military powers, I think is very important. So with that, let's move on into a discussion about the current situation in Israel and the Israeli army. I'd like to talk about the IDF code of ethics. And after that, after we discuss what's going on in Israel now, I'd like to bring in some specific examples of what the ethics of Judaism would say about certain elements of warfare. So my first question about the IDF is, what is your opinion, Shlomo, about the IDF code of ethics and how closely it aligns with Jewish values? Well, you know, there is a bit of uh, in, you know dispute about how to interpret the code of ethics as well. Right, like everything else, you know, you write things down, there's going to be an element of a dispute. But the, one of the critical ideas that was developed already before Israel was founded in 1937, 1938, is this notion of tarata neshek, a purity of arms. And I think in establishing that type of notion, which says that we fight only when we have to fight, we kill only when we have to kill, I think that's a very important notion, and I think one that's well-founded in Jewish thought. Um, when it gets to the details of some of these questions, 
then you can have reasonable people disagree. And so um, I think in that respect, you know, one of the things I try to show in the book is that there are multiple values that always have to be taken into account when we think about military ethics. That's why I think the Jewish framework of thinking about many ethical issues is, medical ethics and other areas of ethics as well. And that's certainly true in the military realm of military ethics. And then the question is going to become is, which principle do you think dominates or should be applied in a certain circumstance? And reasonable people are going to have disagreements about that. And so I think what's most important about the IDF code of ethics, and for that matter, the Jewish, what I call the multi-value framework of military ethics is recognizing the fact that we're going to be taking these values into account and we're going to have reasonable disputes over that, but how to apply them in certain, in certain cases. But I, I do think that the general thrust of the idea of code of ethics is a Jewish one. And I think we should be proud of that. Okay, that's good to hear. Then let me ask the obvious next question. Does the IDF follow, as best you know, its own code of ethics? It's great to have a wonderful code, but the question is, do you actually follow it in practice? So I think we've had, unfortunately, quite a lot of experience since 1982, really, in terms of dealing with issues of how to fight within a war, the ethics of fighting in a war, and particularly have had difficult situations because we're fighting against terrorist groups and asymmetric warfare and urban warfare and whatnot. And I think study after study, that's what that afterwards, not by Jews or Israelis per se, has analyzed each of these warfare, starting from 82 and moving forward to all the battles, again, back in Lebanon and Gaza, and has shown that Israel has been very, very careful about trying to minimize non-combatant casualties, which is sort of the gold standard of, uh, of military ethics today. And I think that's something we should take pride in. So I think, yes, of course, there can be times when mistakes happen. Mistakes sometimes happen because uh, the fog of war. Mistakes sometimes happen because of bad intelligence. Mistakes sometimes happen because of human error and panic and whatnot. And that certainly can happen. But by and large, I, I think that the record has been really fantastic and we should take pride in it. In fact, you know, I think that there's room to ask. And I, I do ask this question in the book. And, uh, you know, I think it's something that we have to always keep in mind is that at times Israel might be too cautious might be too cautious about not acting decisively in even in cases when there might be a, a you know significant number of of non-combatant casualties from collateral damage and uh, there are a number of cases where this has come up and uh, you know i don't know what's exactly what's going on in the current war right now it's too early to know or the details will cer certainly come out but uh, that is always a dilemma that we have to ask ourselves uh, which is that we're balancing values. And one of the values is an ethical value to win, an ethical value to defend our people. October 7th was an ethical failure, not just a strategic failure, because we didn't protect our own people. And so you have to understand that that is an ethical value, which also needs to be prioritized as well. Um, but you know, all that being said, I, I think we should take a lot of pride in Israeli ethics and military ethics. In that case, let me ask you about innocent civilians in general, not from a Geneva Conventions perspective, but from a Torah slash ethical perspective. What is your opinion of Jewish ethics when it comes to protecting civilians? Is it any different from what we hear when it comes to Geneva Conventions and the standard laws of war? Well, the standard laws of war are of great dispute and how exactly to apply them as well. I think it's incorrect 
to think that, you know, those are like unambiguous as opposed to what Judaism has to say about it. There's massive disputes about that as well. I think it's important to keep that in mind. But I, I do think and, and try to develop in the book the argument which says that the Torah is uh, very uh, comfortable with the idea of saying we should be targeting combatants. We should be targeting the people that are threatening us. Now, there will always inevitably be other people that are killed as part of human nature, that's part of political nature, that's part of warfare, which is a collective affair between two different peoples. And so it's inevitable that there's going to be some collateral damage, but the targeting should always be of military targets. I think that... Uh, that I tried to uh, argue in the book. I, I, I'm convinced that's correct. I do admit, though, I could have written a different book, which would have said something a little bit different. And there's no doubt that, that that's possible. Uh, but I think my read is a compelling one. And I, and I think it's a compelling one, not just as a matter of apologetics. And right, I just is trying to, you know, saying like we have to defend and justify against a Western critique, you know, what the Torah says about these issues. No, I think this is actually a really legitimate read of Torah values and how to apply it. I'm going to ask you now about a question that several people have mentioned to me. They didn't state it as a question. They stated it as disagreeing with something that I said. I'll now put it in its most stark terms. There are some people who are arguing, people I know, who say we did not start this war. And if it could save a single soldier on our side, a single Jewish soldier, then we should just carpet bomb the whole thing. Or even perhaps, they don't mean this literally, just nuke them. Who cares? Because this is not our problem. Why should our soldiers die when we could simply end this whole thing with a single bomb? I will say explicitly that is morally outrageous. I am comfortable saying that that is completely unacceptable from a moral perspective. But I'd like to hear what you have to say about it. Well, I agree with you. I mean, I don't think that's what the Torah commands. I don't think that's what military necessity commands. And, and I want to answer that question, though, by throwing it the other way for a moment. If you want to talk about ethics and not just about cheerleader views, so I mean, my cheerleading views is as follows. If you want your side to win, so the way you view about these things is to say, well, whatever my side needs to do to win right, is right and just because we have the just side and just cause. That's not an ethical claim. I'm not saying it's immoral. It's sort of amoral. That's just a claim that people make when they want their side to win. But then turn it around because then the other side, let's say Hamas, could say the same exact thing. Why don't if we had a nuclear bomb? It would be totally ethical for us to just you know throw that onto Tel Aviv. And so you have to, if you want to talk ethics, you have to realize that whatever you want to apply to you, also applies to the other side. It goes both directions. So would we think that October 7th is wrong if you think that you can say, listen, whatever it takes to get Palestinian independence, or whatever it takes to free us from occupation, which is the way they do things, uh, is justified? And once you realize that it has to go both ways, so you want to start understanding, well, maybe there's an ethical claim to having limits on war. That's very important. Now, like I said beforehand, though, when it comes to dealing with Gaza, there's no doubt that force protection, so the term they use in philosophical literature, protecting our own troops is very important. It's a real priority in my mind. And I, I think that part of the critique I have of some of the current ethical literature and sort of academia and whatnot is that there's not enough stress on the ethical value of force protection. Right? They, they're sort of saying that, listen, soldiers are meant to kill and be killed. And they have to do more to protect non-combatants, even on the enemy's side. And I think that we have to do 
make efforts to avoid non-combatant casualties, but we have an ethical obligation to prioritize our own troops first. And so that's always going to be a bit of a value. But by carpet bombing or nuking, whatever it might be, you're not balancing any values in those cases. Right? And in that respect, uh, I take inspiration from my own Rebbe, Rebbe Lichtenstein Zetzal, who in the 82 war, when this issue came up, um, and so because that was the war of asymmetric warfare in Beirut and whatnot, and uh, Rav Aaron said, it is a value to recognize the fact that all human beings were created in the image of God, and we should try to minimize uh, casualties of you know, non-combatants on their side. I agree with what you just said. So this is coming from a perspective of devil's advocate, but those people who are arguing for carpet bombing or nuking Gaza, so to speak, and say better them than one Jewish soldier are coming from the perspective, I believe, they say that a Jewish life is worth more than the lives of the people, even non-combatants, on the other side, a society, they would say, which brought Hamas to power. And therefore, they are complicit. And in some sense, we can say that the lives of our soldiers are worth more than the lives of non-combatants on the other side. I don't want to argue the point, but I want to say what they're saying fairly. But but the assumption there is that uh, a couple of assumptions. The assumption there is that you have to sort of choose and say that whatever it is, or whatever is possible, right, can be done in order to prevent any scratch on a soldier, for example, or any Jewish soldier being killed. Uh, I don't think that's correct. I, I don't think that's the way we view these things. And once again, if you think that's the case, there's really nothing wrong with what Hamas did on October 7th. I mean, maybe they went, you know, you could say, okay, they went a little bit overboard with, you know, some of the things they did to the victims. What was wrong? So you have to be able to explain to the other side why what they're doing is unethical. And if you can't do that, then you don't really have an ethical system, right? Ethics are meant to be applied universally, applied across the board. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't get me wrong. I totally appreciate the on an emotional level where people are coming from when they say this. And I want the IDF to win and to win decisively. And I want all of our soldiers, including four of my nephews, to come home safe and sound. I agree 100%. But, but there's, that doesn't mean that we still don't have to keep in mind how to fight this war ethically. I think a lot of people have a difficult time knowing where to draw the line. As we know, they say only the extremes are logical, but they're absurd. And saying nuking Gaza is a far cry from the other side, which would say, nope, it's one for one. We have to make sure that we never kill a single non-combatant or something like that. And I, I don't have an answer. I don't know if there is an answer, but finding that the perfect balance between making sure that our soldiers are protected and at the same time not killing thousands of innocent civilians in the saving of a single soldier, I, I, it's just hard to know exactly where do you draw that line. Well, I don't know if there's a clear line per se, but I think there are a series of values which can help guide us. And um, I, I don't think it's impossible. You know, I don't mean that it's uh, possible to give like some sort of scientific formula of knowing ahead of time exactly, but it's very much possible to lay out a series of values that should guide us and to try to apply those carefully in the different circumstances that we're dealing with. And uh, I, that I do believe in. I mean, the ethical life is hard, it's complex, but it's not impossible. If it was impossible, then it wouldn't be ethical, right? But the ethical life is possible. And that's precisely why I try to lay out in the book is to find that balance of presenting a framework, which will help us find the balance in applying these ideas in the real world. 
Let's apply an idea in the real world. In general, I am very against the idea that the ends justify the means. I think that the Pasuk in Itzavim, Ba'anisterot, Lashem Elokeinu, Veneglot, Lano, Valenu, etc., says exactly that. Do not allow the ends to justify the means. Do the best you can. Lo lacham lachalik more. You have to do your best, but what happens is really up to God in the end. But in warfare, can we say that at times the ends do justify the means? Because obviously at certain points you're doing things which are terrible, but you're doing it in the service of a greater goal. Uh, I think so. I think you can say that. And I, I, by the way, I, I know it's not clear to me that we can't apply this in other areas of uh, you know life as well. But it's sometimes you know the ends can justify the means in certain circumstances. But you always have to ask: Were those the only means that were available? Were there other alternatives, other possibilities out there as well? And so I, I don't like giving a carte blanche. By any means, the idea of saying, well, the ends you know, here always justify the beats. And I don't think we have to come to that. There might be times when that's true. Uh, and those are very difficult circumstances. But we shouldn't rush to that type of conclusion. How about something like reprisals against people you know who are innocent? In a situation like that, where it will actually serve a military purpose, this is not the same thing as targeting militants, but hitting innocents. I'm talking about targeting an innocent, perhaps to make a point or because it will cause the enemy to do something else. Is there room for that in just war? So this was, you know, clearly the practice of armies for many, many, many centuries, certainly in World War II and beyond as well. And this comes up in a number of cases in the history of Zionism in the 30s and the 50s and other times as well. And, you know, reprisals are a tricky business for a couple of reasons, though. First of all, on a strategic level, it's not really clear that that works, meaning what happens? They killed, attacked our civilians or non-combatants. So as a reprisal, we give them back a taste of their medicine. It's not really clear that always works. I mean, look what happens when they attack our citizens, right? When they do terror attacks, this gets us angry. This causes us to fight, right? The whole idea of saying that was promoted by some, like say in the British army in World War II, that we're going to break down the German people later on. Many of the leaders of the British Army said that it just didn't work. It, it actually pushes people to fight more. So on a strategic level, it's not always clear that that's the case. And on a moral level, the notion of targeting non-combatants purposely, it, it's really not clear why that should be justified and why that's necessary. I, 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 I discussed in the book that there might be pot times when perhaps you could justify in very extreme circumstances but it really isn't usually necessary and it certainly should not be th something that we should be looking to do in any way. Okay, let's ask about justification for war. Obviously, October 7th, I think we're all in agreement, is a justification for Israel to retaliate and strongly. But what about something where it's just the country's honor that's at stake or a PR issue for whatever that might mean in a given case? When can you justify war based on something other than saving, in this case, Jewish lives? Yeah, I, that is a big question about the question of what, you know, there are two sort of categories of just war theory. There's one of how you fight justly within war, but there's a broader question of what is it just to go to war in the first place? And, you know, I think the framework which I try to develop here is one in which is critical for a matter of self-defense. The self-defense is, is really the critical element. Now, sometimes there are occasions uh, where you might say that for the sake of the honor of the people, uh, this is critical for us to fight. The Warsaw Ghetto Rebellion, for example, 
might be such a situation where they understood that they were going to lose and be defeated, but nonetheless, they felt it was very important to stand up for the honor of the Jewish people and to fight. However, I think it's important to keep in mind in those circumstances, the honor which they were defending ultimately was very critical for a self-defense ethos, which got Jews to fight, unfortunately less during the Holocaust, but certainly right afterwards for the state of Israel. And so when you think about those types of motivations, you have to be very, very careful because there's nothing like pride, ego, and honor and whatnot that can lead people into very, very bad wars. And so I, you know, I think we have to be very cautious about that type of matter. I think about certain other situations such as, and this is obviously imaginary, let's say that all of Palestinian territory was completely under Jewish control and completely pacified except for one city that wants to break off. And Israel refuses to allow Hurrah, to use an example that I'm making up now, to break off and form a city-state of Palestine just because they don't want it to. There are no Jews living there and it's not going to affect anything, but we refuse to give up an inch of Eretz Yisrael HaShlema, of the complete land of Israel, so therefore we are going to send in 100,000 troops to subdue them. An imaginary situation like that raises all sorts of complicated problems about just war. On the one hand, you could say, who cares if one small town breaks off, forms a city-state, and now there is a state of Palestine that won't affect us at all. No Israelis live there anyway. On the other hand, you might say this could then lead to a domino effect where other more important cities start breaking off that do have Jews in them, etc. There are so many different questions that are raised by this one question. How do we know in a given situation then when we should say, this is something which I'm going to object to, or when I can say, I'm going to trust my leaders, whatever decision they make. So the first thing you have to do is to establish a framework of thinking about when it is justified to go to war. Do you establish a framework based on kibush aretz, conquest of the land, in which case it's always justified more or less to go to war as long as you know you can win. Right? But if you think you can win, it's always justified to go to war. If you think that the value of defense, as I try to argue in the book, which is the framework that Rav Herzog developed, that the value of self-defense is what governs when we go to war, then you have to make some form of strategic you know, equation and calculation at that point. What is best for our defense, both short-term and long-term? And I want to stress here, that, you know, we live in worlds of uncertainty. So the same way in the medical world, we have situations where we might make decisions we have medical uncertainty. We're not sure if this treatment is going to work. We're not sure if the surgery is going to work. We're not sure exactly what the, you know, the prognosis might be. The same thing is true when it comes to military and strategic matters. You have to make decisions in a world of uncertainty. And so the goal is to establish a way of thinking and a framework that allows you to make reasonable decisions within that framework. And then you have to have a lot of prayer and siyata dishmaya because you know, we don't know exactly how things are going to turn out. Then let me follow up with that in terms of preemptive war, preemptive strikes, such as, for example, the Six-Day War in 1967, where the war effectively opened up when Israel bombed the enemy airfields and the aircraft. Admittedly, one could argue that Egypt had already performed an act of war when Nasser closed the Suez Canal to shipping, but it's easy to say that that was some sort of preemptive strike which enabled Israel to win the war that quickly in response to the bellicose language but not yet that much military action on the part of Egypt and Syria. Or, more recently, the bombing of the Osirak reactor in Iraq, where somebody died as a result, but a lot of people would say, and I'm certainly among them, that was a worthwhile and justified move on Israel's part. When is a preemptive strike justified? Well, um, I, I think what we call anticipatory attacks 
is something that we should divide up. I think we should distinguish between preemptive war and preventive war. Preemptive war is basically the other side is going to attack. It's imminent. It seems or it's likely to be very imminent. And therefore, we try to shoot first to bring it to their side. Uh, that would have been justified, for example, on the Yom Kippur War, when we did have some knowledge right before, unfortunately, way too close to whatever happened, but we did have some knowledge and it probably was a mistake, both strategic and moral, that we didn't try to shoot first in that circumstance. There's another case which is preventative warfare. Preventative warfare isn't that there's an attack imminent, but you're afraid that the other side is building up or getting some form of strategic advantage and you want to beat them to that. That would be the case of the Osirak reactor, the reactor in Syria. I think that would probably be the case as well, the, you know, in terms of Iran today. And at the, the further or the less imminent, let's put it this way, the less imminent it is, right, then you have to have a greater you know, reason to justify to go to that war. But that doesn't mean it's not justifiable. I think that one of the Hezbon and Nefesh, elements of Hezbon and Nefesh that we're going to have to do after October 7th, of course, after the war, is to ask ourselves, do we make a moral mistake by not fighting against Hamas first? And we're going to have to ask ourselves that now when it comes to Hezbollah. Now, we've sort of started a war already with Hezbollah. I mean, we're like pretending we're not at war with them, but you know, we sort of are. This daily shooting that has been already you know, 160 or so Hezbollah fighters killed. We've lost soldiers there as well. But for various reasons, we're pretending we're not at war. But there's a question that we could be asking, we could have been asking on October 11th, for example, is should we be attacking and taking the fight to them? And I think the questions we have to think about is how imminent of a threat of it, how credible it is, and how grave it is. Um, and I actually have a lot of questions right now, but of course I don't have full knowledge of the scene, that maybe we're making a moral error by not bringing the fight to Hezbollah instead of waiting for them to attack us. But as even as I say those words, you always have to say to yourself, you, when you start a war, you don't know how the war is going to finish. And that is a moral factor that you have to take into account. Okay, I want to get to some of the issues about the current war in a few moments. But first, I want to ask you about something else. There is a halacha that when you besiege a city, you have to allow people to flee. And I'm wondering how that applies nowadays and how we should... Obviously, in Gaza, Israel has sort of done that, although they aren't letting combatants flee. They're trying their best to only let innocents, however that's defined, flee. What do you think in the 21st century that halacha means? How is that applied nowadays in Jewish ethics? Yeah, I mean, it's not explicit in the Torah, by the way, but it's, it's something that comes up in Chazal, which is interesting where Chazal get it from. Uh, I try to speculate a little bit about, about the book, but this idea of leaving the fourth side open in the case of a siege. And Rav Gorin, really fascinatingly, in 1982, when Israel lay siege on Beirut, Rav Gorin uh, publicly demands, he's the chief rabbi at the time, publicly demands that we leave open evacuation corridor to allow people out. Rav Israeli, head of America's Arab, was very upset about it. He says, there's no such requirements so not in this circumstance. And without getting into the details right now, I think that what's being established there is a principle, and this is important. It's not a bona fide law as much as a principle. And the principle says that when you can allow people to flee in a way which it's not like fleeing so they can then come back against you, but get them out of the warfare, which will help you both strategically, but also on a humanitarian level. That is a value which we should try to implement as much as possible. And I think Israel tries to do it with forewarning, 
for warning, whether it's roof knocking, right, dropping a bomb, or, you know, an empty bomb on the building to get people out of the building or dropping leaflets or whatnot. Uh, Israel tries to clear non-combatants out of the area, which, of course, also allows combatants to flee as well. And there's an open question whether we do that a bit too much and lose a certain amount of strategic advantage in that respect. But I do think that at least as a value, this is an important value, and it's indicative of a larger statement, which is that even when war has started, right, forgetting about whether you should try to make peace beforehand or avoid war, but even once war has started, we should still care as one value of trying to minimize, to the extent we can, while we're trying to win the war, to minimize non-combatant casualties on the enemy side. Okay, that leads us to the way the current war is being conducted. Let me ask you, as a starting question in this particular topic, what are some of the mistakes, perhaps, that you think that the IDF has done? I'm speaking on an ethical level now. I'm not asking you to comment as a military strategist, but rather from an ethical perspective, are there some specific mistakes that the Israeli Defense Forces have made over the past three months that you think are an ethical problem? Well, I, I, I think it's too, uh, I'm certainly not going to try to be a Monday morning quarterback while we're still in the middle of the game. And I, I certainly don't have all the information that hasn't been come out yet. So I, I know I, don't, I think it would be wrong to uh, to try to critique that. There's been some you know comments in the press. You saw some one of the Israeli cabinet members who said that Israel is not doing enough to protect our troops. It's being too careful. And the army came back quite strongly and said, uh, we are doing everything we can to protect our troops. Um, and including bringing artillery and bringing the air force as backup, right? When we, uh, you know, to err on the side of protecting our troops. If that's the case, then Israel's doing a great job. That, that's a wonderful thing. I think there's a very big ethical question when it comes to the goals of this war. And the cabinet has sort of established their two goals to defeat Hamas and to return the captives. And here there's a big ethical question whether those should be two equal goals or whether the goal should be one and only to defeat Hamas. And of course, part of defeating Hamas is for the, you know, the, the goal of defeating Hamas, excuse me, is to protect the Israeli people. Certainly the ones that we want to protect, the ones most in danger, which are the captives right now, but we've got to protect the entire country right now. Uh, I, I personally have a lot of issues with the fact that they've divided this into two different goals. Those goals might conflict with each other at certain points. And I think the goal should have been one and only, which is to defeat Hamas and restore security to the Israeli people. I don't want to say this as an ethical critique at this stage because, you know, it's not clear exactly if there's going to be any nafkamin and how this plays out. But it sounds like it could be. And when push comes to shove here, I think we need to prioritize defeating Hamas as the priority of this war. And I think it's an ethical obligation. Do you think that there have been areas where the IDF has been exceptional in its ethical conduct during this war that you can point out? I mean, I think the fact that we cautiously took over hospitals over days, as opposed to just bombing the hospital. I mean, let's be very clear. Under international law itself, I don't mean under halacha right now, international law makes very clear, hospitals lose their protected status when a combatant side is using it, is firing from there, is using it as shelter. Uh, that's a very clear and unambiguous element of international law. And what international law only says is that you have to forewarn, you have to tell them to try to get people out. But at some point, this is just a legitimate military target and you can bomb away. 
And Israel didn't do that. Now, we didn't do that partly because of PR issues, but I think also because we didn't want to uh, kill a lot of non-combatants and people that are frankly suffering in hospitals. And, and in some ways, you know, I think that's wonderful, but, and here's the but, no options should be off the table. And so if the fact that we don't act quickly and decisively ends up be looking backwards here as being a mistake, I think we're going to have to ask ourselves is, were we a bit too cautious in order to protect um, the enemy non-combatants? But there are a lot of things to keep in mind here, including, of course, foreign support, making sure that our our guns and our bullets and our missiles get uh, restocked by America and other places as well. There's a lot of elements that we have to take into account. Then you mentioned the hospitals. That makes me think back to the Baptist Hospital, the first weeks of the war before the invasion, when it was an air campaign exclusively. And there was a Hamas claim that Israel had bombed a hospital. It turned out that that was not true. It was actually Islamic Jihad and a misfired rocket. And their claim that 500 people had been killed was also overstated. It was 50 people. And again, it was a parking lot. But part of the reason that Israel got this terrible PR as a result of that was because Israel refused to immediately say it wasn't us until they actually did a bit of investigation. Hamas got its version out there immediately. And even an hour and a half later, it was already too late. The story had spread like wildfire across planet Earth. My question for you, Slomo, is the norm of truth-telling in warfare. Because over here, had Israel decided, you know what, I don't care about the truth, before we know anything, we're just going to say that it wasn't us and at least get our narrative out there first. Admittedly, with anti-Semitism and anti-Israel sentiment, it might not have mattered. But maybe it would have. Maybe some people wouldn't have quickly swallowed that narrative of Hamas when there were two immediately competing narratives. So what is Israel's responsibility vis-a-vis truth when it comes to warfare? Well, there's a lot of lies being fought against us. And uh, the question really, I think, comes down to can you fight lies with lies, right? And sort of, or or let's say not necessarily lies, but say, just immediately say something which you don't know to be true, but you're going to say it because it's helpful in your PR. Uh, That could be justified, I think, on an ethical level, given what's going on against us. But uh, I think in this case, and it's really interesting what happened there, Israel gained a lot of credibility with foreign press and foreign leaders when it said we're looking at investigating this and then proved very clearly that it wasn't us. Um, Now, of course, it took a few days for that to come out. In the meantime, it's all over Al Jazeera and TikTok and Instagram and whatnot. And the New York Um, Times and the Washington Post. Yes, but uh, both the New York Times, at least, and other outlets as well, made a big story out of it, clarifying later on as well. And, uh, you know, that there, there was some long-term advantage to that as well. And I, I think that's an interesting dilemma, which is always going to be is who do you care about and whose, you know, credibility matters. But here's my question to you, Scott. Let's say Israel had denied it was us. And so right away, no, no, it could have been us. Okay? Would it have mattered? Or would have those who are looking to see Israel as the aggressor and Israel as the people that just indiscriminately kill, where they had just looked at those pictures and said it anyway. And, and so, you know, that that's an open question, which I think we have to ask ourselves. And, you know, that's a strategic question. Ultimately, what we have to recognize is as follows. There's a lot of anti-Semitism in the world. There's a lot of anti-Israel sentiment in the world. We're not going to be able to win everyone over. So the question becomes is, who do we care about? Whose opinion matters? 
on a strategic level in order for us to win this war? It's a very, very important question to ask because we can't win over everyone. There's no way we're going to get to the point, let's say, where we become like the Ukraine. Right? No, no, we're not going to get to that point. And, and so we have to ask ourselves, right, well, whose opinion matters right now? I mean, I'll tell you that I fully agree with you. And I was very proud that Israel did not immediately say, well, it wasn't us. They said, we have to investigate because we don't know. I believe the truth is an important norm. It's not the most important norm in every context. We know that from the Torah itself, but it's an important norm. But you're speaking on a strategic level, which also I agree with. But I'd ask you simply as a norm, truth in war, even if it's not a PR issue, very often we know that there'll be statements out from the government, which may not necessarily be 100% accurate. They're trying to send a message to somebody. We don't even know whom they're talking to at a given time. They may be speaking to Iran. They may be speaking to someone in Hamas. They may be speaking to the United States. What about telling truth as a norm, as an ethical norm during warfare? Yeah, there's certainly, I think that's a great question. I think that there is room to uh, to spread propaganda that might be not true in order, for example, to scare the enemy, perhaps, right, in order to create some form of, uh, of as a strategic tactic to bring about an advantage. Uh, that being said, in democracies, one of the great things about democracies is truth telling is super important in order to make sure that we're fighting the war that we want to be fighting for the right reasons and, and to make sure that we're uh, acting the way that we want to be acting. We learned terribly from 1982 when the defense minister, Ariel Sharon, went on a different agenda that was agreed upon and was telling the Israeli public a different goal than what was decided upon by the cabinet. That's a terrible moral error. And truth, you know, truth telling is really important to be honest with the people who are sending their sons and daughters and, of course, the soldiers themselves to kill and be killed on our behalf. I think that's a very you know, important value to be truthful. And I want to say I took tremendous amount of pride in the fact that Israel was honest about their own troops, our own troops, accidentally, of course, inadvertently killing those three hostages. You could have imagined a situation where we could have sort of fudged it, right? We could have said they got killed in the crossfire or they got killed beforehand and whatnot. And Israel was very honest about it. It didn't have to be. It was someone there. Right? And so I, you know, I think that there's a great value to that and this truth-telling, even though, of course, it had a really bad impact on the spirit of the country at the time, right? And it might have a negative impact when you think about freeing captives. But there is a real value in being honest on what's actually going on. I'd like to ask you about conscientious objectors in Jewish thought as a general rule. These are people who are not against a specific war, but against war in general as a concept. And therefore, I guess we can call them pacifists by nature or for because of moral or religious reasons. Is there a room for a conscientious objection in Jewish thought as you see it? Well, we do have exceptions that are made for a conscription um, in the Torah. Um, it's not really supposed to be for cases of a Muhammad mitzvah. That's part of what the notion of the mitzvah is that everyone who's needed should be called out, right? That, that's part of the idea, say, that the Mishnah and Sota establishes. Um, uh, that said, you know, there is a question about how much do we want those people, right? If they really have a real issue, I'm fighting with it. But of course, if you get a situation where people aren't willing to fight for our country, as we know well, we'll die. Um, and so you know, I think there's going to be a little bit of a balance on that. By and large, I think the Torah's attitude is not one of supporting 
a conscious objection in the sense that we, for when it has been decided reasonably, this is a justified war. That said, you certainly have cases, I already see this in Tanakh, and you see this other places as well, where there's a praise for those who say, I'm not going to fight in this war because this is not a melchem and mitzvah, right? this is not a just war by any means. Um, and so it, it's it's tricky because that can sometimes be just a matter of a judgment call. You might say, we don't really need to go to war against Lebanon or Iran, for example. But so that that is tricky here. And I, I think ultimately the Torah gives us a bit of a framework, but we're going to have to try to figure that out case by case. And that's why, why I said earlier, so important. It's important for us to distinguish between uh, cases of real Muhammad mitzvah and other cases which are discretionary wars. We have to decide, which we call Muhammad Rashut. Okay, then, is there any case to be made that what you're going through right now is not a Muhammad mitzvah? Or do you think this is Likuli Alma, according to everybody, a Muhammad mitzvah, a mandatory war? I, I think that according to everyone right now, that's certainly the case. But I want to say something which is important about thinking about warfare. You don't only decide the justness of going to war before it starts. Even during a war, you have to always be asking yourself, is it still a just war? Are we still able to accomplish just goals? And that's an important element because sometimes countries can go to war for very just reasons, but the way things develop, for could be for a lot of different reasons, don't go the way they want and they have to make strategic you know, reassessments. Now, it could be, I certainly feel the case right now is we have to keep on fighting, it's a just war and whatnot, but there are times when wars don't go the way we want to do it, and it's important to not keep on fighting just because it was, you know, just to fight on October 7th. I think we learned this during the Lebanon War, the first Lebanon War. Uh, We learned this uh, in America, learned this in Afghanistan and Iraq didn't learn it fast enough, quick enough, and whatnot. And I, I think that's always very important. And it's a very important element to always be asking yourself on a strategic level, right? Is this still a war which is justified given the goals that we can accomplish at this given time? So let me ask my perhaps most contentious question for today, which is about Haredi conscription, meaning if this is a Muhammad mitzvah or at any given point, as you just said, during the war, it is a Muhammad mitzvah. As you understand the ethics of warfare and the mandatory nature of a Muhammad mitzvah, is there any excuse in your mind for people not being drafted into the army? Now, I realize practically you might say, well, by the time they're trained, the war will be over or it won't be a Muhammad mitzvah anymore, so that might justify it. But at least in principle, given that a Muhammad mitzvah requires even a bridegroom and a bride to leave the chuppah to go fight, do you think that there's any reason that somebody who is learning should be exempt from a Muhammad mitzvah? And again, let me say one more thing. I'm not speaking about anyone in particular. I'm talking about it as a general rule. There's absolutely no justification for it. It's a massive chilol Hashem. And I want to be you know, very clear about that. Um, I, and I think there's a Mephorish Pasuk in the Torah. Moshe tells this to uh, you know the tribes that don't want to come in. It makes it very clear. And uh, listen, you know, we have to deal with practical matters right now. And unfortunately, the way Israeli politics have developed, this hasn't gone that way. But it is a total distortion of the Torah to think that on a mass level, people just because they want to be dedicated to Torah learning become exempt from uh, from serving in the army. It's a mass Hashem. Uh, it's immoral. It's against halacha. I, 
I think I've been clear enough when I think about it. Okay, that is not ambiguous. Thank you for that. My final question, Shlomo, is this. Would you say right now, when we hear that the IDF is the most moral army in the world, which is a line which our politicians often say and which people who are members of the IDF often say, I certainly hope that's true, but I myself am not a member of the IDF. As much as you can see it, do you think that that's a fair claim, that the Israeli Defense Forces are the most moral army in the world as far as you know? I think it's a very fair claim. And I, I don't think we have to feel like it's just we feel this way because of the, you know, we're on our side, right? This is our team. This is our country. If you look at the analyses that have been done of Israeli warfare throughout the decades, but certainly since 1982, we've been dealing with asymmetric warfare and fighting terrorist groups and the PLO and whatnot, you will see time after time, there's agreement to the fact that Israel is doing tremendous, taking tremendous strides to try to minimize non-combatant casualties. And I think you just, that's the only way, honest way of uh, understanding this. There are many people who criticize Israel for a different reason, and they're conflating two different factors. They're criticizing Israel because they think Israel should come to some form of political agreement with the other side. And they're upset that Israel hasn't come to a political agreement with this other side. And so they have a negative attitude to the warfare that we have with the other side because they say, well, you could have prevented it anyway. That, that's a terrible way of evaluating warfare and the ethics of how people fight war, uh, fight ethically in war. And I think here we should take tremendous pride in the fact that uh, we try as best as we can to fight ethically and to fight properly in the context of war. But I want to state something clear as well. The world is going to criticize us anyway. That doesn't mean we should ignore our ethics. Our ethics are important. But part of our ethics as well is that we have an ethical obligation to win the war and to win the war decisively. That is a prime ethical obligation. And so when people say to me, you know, is is the most moral army in the world? I say this follows. It is the most, or I don't don't know how to judge, right, calculate it, but it's certainly one of, right, if not the most moral army in the world. And part of the reason for that is that this is such a central topic in our discourse. It's such a central topic in the way we think, the way we train our soldiers, the way we train our population, but also because of the fact that we prioritize winning. Winning isn't just a matter of national interest. Winning is a matter of morals and ethical obligation. And so it's my hope and prayer that we will continue to fight ethically. And part and parcel of fighting ethically, though, is to do what it takes to win, while also trying to retain these other values as well. Winning is a matter of a moral obligation is a very important phrase. So thank you for everything you've said to me today. Again, the book which you just wrote is called Ethics of Our Fighters, A Jewish View on War and Morality. Rabbi Shlomo Brody, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. 
I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.